Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hello, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. Uh, with me today is, and I'm going to take a deep breath if I can get through this, entrepreneur, author, artist, world traveler, spiritual seeker, and storyteller, Steve Quigley. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Carmen. I am... Uh, I am amazed at the breadth and depth of what you do. Um, but the thing that I think is is most interesting and where I want to start is your book, uh, Unbreakable Mind, Channeling Your Survival Instincts After Catastrophic Injury. Um, can you give me a little bit of um, the, the background of what happened that led you uh, to write the book um, and, and, and how you uh, how you decided to turn that that situation into something that was a teachable moment for so many people yeah it's a great question uh, basically of course the accident is the the premise of the book and what brought me to write it but getting to the point of actually writing it was a, a mm -hmm. long process at first uh, friends told me you should write a book you should write a book and I've often heard that from other friends that have had different situations and stories. You should write a book. And I didn't feel there was a reason to write a book because I thought it was self-aggrandizing. And I didn't think that anything that I had done up until that point was special. And I didn't want to, uh, it was also very private to me and I didn't want to make it too public. And I didn't want to put the spotlight on me and say, hey, look at me, I'm special because really I didn't think there was anything uh, particular about my situation that was uh, worthy of a book because there's lots of people out there that face uh, great trauma and injury mm -hmm. and uh, accidents in life and they come back and they recover and they go on to live uh, fruitful lives. So mm -hmm. after a few years of talking to different people, uh, different mentors, people that are, are, are published, um, one in particular, Rod Napier from University of Pennsylvania, who's a close friend with 16 books, uh, over time on Saturdays, he would come to my uh, condominium in Cherry Hill and mm -hmm. speak with me and help me through the accident. And eventually at some point, he helped me realize that there was value in what I was doing and uh, mm -hmm. the process that I was going through and that I needed to share that with other people because especially uh, it, there are very few books you can find written at a PhD level from the bedside and not only would it be valuable for uh, for patients and people out there that found themselves in under a great duress or a big accident or in a trauma but also would be valuable for the caretakers the families the friends and also the medical staff so sure. yeah uh, basically it took about two years of convincing and uh eventually i decided okay i'll, I'll write the book well, I mean, what, what I what I think is fascinating about the book is that it's um, the more personal your experience is, the more universal it is to everyone else. You know, it's it's amazing to me that you know you can you can go through chapter to chapter, and even though we're talking about the things that have happened to you and the way that you've adapted, they still apply to so many other people, whether they've had a catastrophic injury or, um, or have had other trauma in their lives. Did exactly. that surprise you? No, I think what it is, is, uh, from a psychology standpoint, which is a lot of my background, life is a mirror and through mm. others, uh, we find meaning for ourselves. So I think others can, uh, find inspiration and motivation for their own problems. Looking at mine as a mirror into their own lives and their own struggles. Some people will minimize their struggles or their accident in comparison to mine, but uh, to each their own. And everybody has mm -hmm. their own level and threshold. So, you know, what, what might seem like a, a, a small thing to me may be a huge thing to another to overcome. So, um, so no, it, it didn't really surprise me. As I was writing it, I, was, I kind of realized that. And that's one of the reasons that uh, helped push me to write it also was that I knew other people – uh, even normal people have a fight because all fights are psychological. The accident itself is tough and it's hard, but the physical you can get through and you push through and you, and you grin, grin and bear it and you get through it. But 
all, all the things that we face in our head, all the demons are psychological. And that doesn't mm. change whether you're overcoming a broken leg or a broken back. Well, and and I think that the way that you approached this book was um, was very smart because you take people through, you know, 18 different facets of what the experience is going to be like. And, and you do, you bounce back and forth between the physical challenges and the mental challenges and the spiritual challenges. And not everybody does that. You know, when you, when you go to, you know, and I've, I've had, you know, you talk about McGee in here, which is a phenomenal facility and they are great about, you know, having a positive attitude and helping you, um, you know, recover as, uh, as fully as you can. There's very rarely though, is there somebody that you can talk to that will work with you across all three of those areas, mind, body, and soul. So what, what led you to making sure that you were tying all those three pieces together? The short answer is, um, to write a book and just to tell your story, it might be interesting, but not many people will read it because there's no mm. takeaway. You read about someone's story and you say, oh, poor guy, what a bad story. But a news, newspaper article is good enough to do that. You don't have mm. to spend uh, you know, hours and hours endless uh, toil to, to actually write a book because it's tremendously hard to write a book. It's, you know, it's just the same as, as a PhD in short, uh, mm -hmm. basically. So um, I felt that uh, it was important to cover all the different aspects that one would face as they were going through it. And in order to give the meaning to the book, there had to be some takeaway. So I, I kind of made it in three parts. The first part was the accident, which is the story. The mm -hmm. second part was the recovery, which is the mirror for people. And yeah. the third part was the spiritual, which was the takeaway, which is here's what I, here's what I had, here's what I went through, and now here's what I'm doing with it. So yeah. then other people could find inspiration and motivation for their own lives into their own, uh, into their own meaning as a mirror to then go out and do something great after they got through the psychological battle, whatever it was. Well, I mean, that, that part fascinated me because when I look at it, I think, um, back to what, um, you know, C.S. Lewis said, which was that, you know, it, you don't, um, it's not that you, uh, have a soul and you are a body. You know, it's that you have a body and you are a soul. And if you think yes. about it that way, you know, it, it, it changes a lot. But you use people throughout history and not just, you know, Western history. You're pulling Eastern philosophy in as well as Western. And I love the, the way that you touch on things. You know, you, 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 you quote the, uh, the mensa sana in corpore sanio, right? The healthy mind is a healthy body. Yes. And so often I've found when I've had significant illness or issues. One of the hardest things to get past is how people look at you differently. It's not how you feel. It's that you have to deal with people asking that kind of dreaded question, you know, how do you feel? How are you? And what you really want to do is say, look, you know, my head's in the game. I've got to, I've got to do this. So how have you, um, how have you framed that up? And um, do you find that's, that's true with other people when you, when, who, who talk to you about the book? I think there's two parts. I think uh, the book excluded, uh, you have in people that are injured. I think, um, you know, I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's been in a wheelchair for a lot of years. Yeah. And uh, if he's at a, a local market, let's say Wawa, to speak of the area and he's getting ready to go into the glass doors. People will run a hundred, 150 feet away from their, from their gas pump to go open the door for him. Yeah. Whereas I go to get in the door and I open it by myself and it slams me and it, I go head butts into the glass and my dog <laughs> smashes me into different doorways. And I think the difference is, is I think it's what you wear on your face. I think it's, mm -hmm. uh, do you have a, a face of pity? Poor me. I'm a victim in life. Or do you have a confident, strong, I'm a survivor? Uh, mm -hmm. so from that aspect, I don't, people don't normally see me in a chair. They don't think of me as injured uh, because mm -hmm. I don't carry that card. I don't, I don't play yeah. the card. I'm not a victim. Uh, I rarely park in handicapped spots. I don't have handicapped license plates. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a placard, but I, I, I rarely ever use it unless it's an emergency. So uh, I, I wear the, the survivor hat, 
And I think that yeah. people can feel that and they can see that. Um, from a book uh, standpoint, I think when people read the book, it gives them another uh, view into the world of injury and into the world of, you know, life's not over when you face an injury, whether it's mm-hmm. a disease like cancer, it's a stroke. Uh, again, all psych- all battles come down to the psychology, come down to the, to the mind. So mm-hmm. I think uh, in that they find meaning in the book, uh, again, as a mirror to their own lives. And I think that's the value in the book is that it's not just written for people who, who uh, woke up in a trauma, which originally when I wrote it, uh, to give you a kind of history, uh, yeah. my editor, uh, when I sent it to her, she, she, she said, I'll send it back to you when I'm ready. Three weeks later, it came back. And she said, well, Stephen, don't be upset with me. I ripped it in half and in shreds and I put it back together. And I thought, well, geez, that's, that's a nice thing to tell a first-time author. Thank, <laughs> I feel great today. Um, and then she said, well, just read it and see what you think. And I read it and I was very surprised. And what she did was she saw the value in the story and the lesson and everything that I went through and everything that I was trying to, to, um, to relay to others. And she took it from being a book that was meant just for trauma victims and made it a book that was available to everybody because she yeah. understood the greater psychology that I was struggling with at the time was relative to everyone. And so I think that that is what people can relate to in the book most. Well, I mean, I, it, it's, it's fascinating to me that you, that that was the intention behind it. You know, once you, and I think you're right, I've taught writing and I've, I've had editors my entire life and great editors are going to give you a perspective that you don't have. And I think that, um, People need that, you know. They need that objective eye sometimes. Um, but one of the things that you said that I thought was really interesting, and it actually it reflects, you know, where you are right now, is it's one thing to survive, right? To key in those survival instincts after an injury or an event. But what you've done is pivoted from there into thriving. And I think that the the thing that I'm impressed with is just visually when I, when I look at your blog, you know, when I, when I look at the, the photos that you take, when I see the breadth of places that you go, uh, I'm, I'm amazed, not because, you know, you, you're in a wheelchair or, or because you've had an injury, but because you've put certain things, certain priorities, uh, experiences over, you know, material possessions. You want to, you know, see the world and 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 maybe experience different ways of life. So, what got you um, to continue to do that type of, you know, pretty adventurous travel, following you know all of these these uh, processes for recovery? Sure, it's basically the same attitude I had before my injury, and it's, it's a heart versus mind. You know, mm-hmm. at a very young age, I found success and ended up on Wall Street and lived in a, a nice apartment on Fifth Avenue, Washington Square, off my patio, Arc de Triomphe and, and whatnot, the towers when they still stood uh, in my mm-hmm. backyard. Uh, and I had a taste of that life, the corporate life. Um, but since a young age, I'd always uh, did things my way. And people who know me will laugh uh, because that's just... Um, what I do. And there's a, a person that's in my life now that I could talk about uh, later in the show, uh, Pat Croce, who gave mm-hmm. me a great, uh, a great bit of information and advice on that note, uh, on that uh, level. But it, I've always looked into my heart and I've always done what I thought I wanted to do and didn't care what others thought. So after I left corporate life, uh, I dilly dallied in, in entrepreneurship, which I had done since age eight. And I uh, would go back and forth when I was broke. I'd go back to corporate and try to make money and then go back and make a new company and it would fail. And, mm-hmm. I, and eventually I got sick of that and I got sick of the, 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 the hamster treadmill. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though I knew better, you know, I still wanted to, to taste it and to experience it. So uh, up until my accident, I had been following my heart and I had been doing mm-hmm. what I wanted to do inside because money never drove me in the sense other than what I could do with it and do good with it, which is the same now for me. So it was always a matter of what made me feel good, what made me smile. 
It didn't matter what others thought. You know, in my 30s, my friends were buying shore houses and mountain houses and million-dollar houses and Sunday cars mm-hmm. and had trophy wives. And they were uh, looking at me and laughing and saying, hey, Stephen, you know, what's wrong with you? You're poor. You know, you travel to the and you're following your heart. You know, good luck with that. These are the same guys that are going to pay me consulting fee at age 50 when they call me crying because they're so unhappy with their lives. Mm-hmm. They spent their lives chasing superficiality and following a model of society that says that he with the most toys wins mm-hmm. and he with the greatest title. And eventually people find out that that's unfulfilling. And none of those items, none of those houses, none of those titles give you happiness. So yeah. all the while before my accident, I was following my heart. So when I, when I had my accident, one of the greatest uh, uh, obstacles I had to overcome, honestly, the wheelchair is easy for me. It's really not a big obstacle. Uh, mm. being, not being able to travel really, really, really hurt me uh, mm. tremendously because I had traveled to 75 plus countries before my accident and had wow. lived, I had lived in, in 10 or so. And for uh, over a decade of my life, uh, close to 15 years now, I've lived abroad. Uh, as I am living abroad right now. So um, so after a couple of years, uh, it took about six years to get back enough energy, enough body control, enough muscle development, enough everything to get back on a plane. And uh, the first trip I took was to Amsterdam. So what a mm-hmm. great city, a city I ended up sure. spending, spending three years in uh, the last couple of years before COVID-19. And so when I got on that plane, that was freedom for me, Carmen. And uh, it put me back on the globe and put me back on the map. And I'll tell you uh, a short story. When I studied Latin in college, I had a great classics professor from University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Spatola, Anthony Spatola. And he Mm -hmm. was a real, uh, he was a classics guy. So he was a real nerdy kind of super smart guy. And he told of a Greek philosopher who had thought himself to have traveled the world, but never left his home. And that impressed upon me, not only the power of the mind uh, over the body, um, but also what what's capable in the mind and what you can do in life and where you can go. And the mm. globe could truly become your, your, your playground. And that's what I've made it. I've made it my playground. And wherever I see on the map, I want to go, I go. And so now years later, now that I'm, uh, I'm stronger, my body is much more recovered, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm able to travel, that's what I'm back to doing. And it's, it's made my heart full. And that basically just feeds into my other projects. And it all yeah. wraps up with helping other people find their heart and uh, get into their heart, which is the second book I'm writing at this time, which is called mm. Unbeatable Heart. And quickly, I'll tell you, it's three parts. The first part of the book is going to be explaining the heart and what it is. Most people don't understand the heart. All your decisions come from your heart. Everything that you think comes from your mind doesn't come from your mind. Uh, Your emotions, your thoughts, everything like that. Your mind is basically a ping pong machine. The second Mm -hmm. part of the book is uh, how to get into the heart, how how to delve into the heart because the heart is the way to your soul, which is the way to God. And that's where you start to find meaning in life. And that's where you start to find purpose and fulfillment. And then the third part of the book uh, fall, falls into what to do with that information. Once you have that information, what do you do with it? It's it's one thing to study and to learn and get information, but another thing that most educators and most programs in the world fail at is they don't teach you what to do with it once you get home. Now that you have this great information, you don't have a guide. You have no one there as a mentor to push you and to help you uh, through the maze of life, through the labyrinth of, of living. So the third mm-hmm. part of the book is then going to be what to do with that information and how to follow up on it so that therefore you can look into your heart and then hopefully find happiness. That, I mean, that's fascinating to me. And I, and I, I agree with you that the, um, you know, the balance between the head and the heart, the, the other one that I've been reading about is the gut as well, because they find that, um, you know, blood flow changes, you know, when you do have an emotion, you do have a, uh, a flood of, of blood goes to your heart. You know, there is a, there is a, a flushness that happens. And I think, um, it's, it's interesting to me the way that you, you talk about what to do with the information once you get it, you know, to what end, um, everything that you said, um, about the ability to really suppress the ego 
and look for greater meaning, I think is becoming more relevant to people. You know, this pandemic put people back on their heels and now they're thinking about, well, you know, so what now, what is what I always talk about. Um, Do you want to bounce back or do you want to bounce back better? You want to bounce back different? We've never had more, we've never had more material items in our, in our modern history, but we're the unhappiest ever of the three unhappiest countries in the world are China, India, and United States. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the pandemic to me spiritually is a gift, just like I write about in the book. Sickness is a gift. Sickness is yeah. a gift from above because it gives you a reset button. It gives you time mm-hmm. away from your daily manipulations, your daily veils, your daily blankets of security that define mm-hmm. us all, that we think define us, our cars, our, our job titles, our big houses. And sickness knocks you down on your butt and says none of that matters. And it gives you time to sit and think. So, you know, uh, there's always a positive and a negative to everything. There's a yin and a yang. There's a, mm-hmm. a, a night, you know, a day. There's dark, there's light. There's good, there's bad. That's the duality of life. So uh, part of being healthy also is sickness. You know, you can't know happiness without knowing yeah. sadness. So the, the pandemic in some ways is a great gift to people to take a step back and to reevaluate where they are in life and what's important to them and what are their priorities. And I think you're finding that there's a lot of people now for example, if you look at Google search or sales, baking goods are up tremendously. Yeah. People are home, they're cooking with their kids and spending more time with their family. And that yeah. now is going to, you're going to see a transition in the next few years with not only work from home, but you're going to see people that have reevaluated their lives and their time. I mean, what have you, if you spend, you know, nobody on their deathbed ever said, Hey, I wished I, I had worked more. So, mm-hmm. you know, for people that have this situation now in their home with their family, I think not only work from home is going to change, which it's adjusting now from offices, but you're going to see people that are going to start to do more and, and, and make less essentially, but the sure. heart is going to be happier and they'll be happier. And, and, and live more. Yeah. And live more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, well so I want to go back to that. There's a, there's uh, like you, I love to travel. Um, and you know, I have travel specific questions that that tap into this. Um, What's the place in the world that you've been that felt furthest from where you feel comfortable? Where I felt most uncomfortable? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, but but you know, when you, you you know, in your home, you know, when you're in your home, if you're in South Jersey, you grew up in South Jersey, you feel comfortable there. What's the place in the world where you felt furthest from that experience? Wow. Good question. Um, I, I, mine is, is, is not typical. Mine is, is unusual, but um, I wanted to see how you approach it. Where I traveled or where I lived? Either. I mean, you tell me. Um, and maybe both. So, yeah, I think travel-wise would be the Middle East. Uh, of which I did live also for two years. But I, if I had to answer, I would probably put where I lived and I would probably say Indonesia, of which I spent two mm. years. Okay. So what, what about the Middle East is so unique? One of the things I love about it is that the facades of homes uh, give nothing away to how vibrant and interesting and dynamic the interiors are. It's a, it's a very interesting kind of cultural dynamic there. But how about you? So what I... What I found most interesting in the Middle East uh, was the the religious aspect, actually, mm. and okay. uh, vis-a-vis history and how that's playing itself out now in, in mm. modern times. And uh, my greatest interest was in speaking with the people. I went to school in Israel at Ben-Gurion University, mm. and, uh, but I spent a lot of time with, uh, in the West Bank, in Gaza, talking with Palestinians, in mm. Jordan, talking with Palestinians, the Heshmis. And in Egypt, uh, also speaking with the, the various people, the, uh, everything from the Coptics to the Bedouin to mm-hmm. to um, to Muslims to to Christians to everyone. So um, I found that the way that society interweaves the three religious aspects all into one area, uh, which makes it very volatile too. And I was there at the time of Yitzhak Rabin was killed. It was mm. a time of the uh, second war with Lebanon, the Grapes of Wrath. It was mm. also the time of the second Antifada uprising in Arabic. And yeah. uh, there was also the most terrorism that year in bombs 
that took place in Jerusalem and other uh, other cities. So I was there in quite quite a uh, political year that kind of captivated with the the assassination of the uh, prime minister, just mm. turned the country upside down. Uh, so to me, wow. it was it was the combination of history, politics, and religion that made it the wow. most interesting. I mean, I, I was just reading about that, that the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in, in Jerusalem, it, it gets opened every morning by a Muslim couple. <laughs> they yeah, own the keys. It's, it's actually a really interesting <laughs> church. I have a lot of stories I could tell you about that church and different people I met there. Ended up meeting Jimmy and Rosalind Carter outside wow. the church and then getting invited to dinner uh, <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, dinner with Netanyahu, Arafat, and a few others, uh, Jimmy included, but... Um, I declined. I was a young student having a beer on the steps across from the Holy Sepulchre. But it's mm. a very interesting church as it's controlled by the four different sects of Christianity. And mm -hmm. they all have to agree on uh, on every aspect. Otherwise, a decision can't be made. And if you look at mm -hmm. any picture of the Holy Sepulchre, above the door, about eight feet above on the right, you'll see a tiny ladder, a four-step ladder. It's mm -hmm. been there for about 120 years because no one, nobody can agree on where to move <laughs> it to. So, yeah, it's a very uh, interesting church. Um, but, but what a metaphor, right? I mean, that, and, and, and that's, that's really where I want to want bring this back to is that your spiritual underpinning for all of the physical and all of the mental stuff, you've got a base of spirituality that, that kind of inherently deals with all of those conflicts. I mean, it seems to me that in your writing, you know, and, and, and even in the way that your, your life has become this extended journey, that you're, you're looking to deal with all of these dichotomies. So why? Why do you feel compelled to, to try and answer these big questions? Because the only way that you find answers or fulfillment or happiness in life is by looking within, not without. Most people in our society are taught to look without, which is mm. education job title, money, mm -hmm. how big your house is, how many houses, all these material items. So I've, I've long been on that inner journey. Uh, and the inner journey is, is, is the hard one because you cannot know light without darkness. And you first have to mm -hmm. go through darkness. And that's what I went through, basically a, a small hell in a sense. Forget the injury. Yeah. Psychologically, recovery, that's, that makes it easy <laughs> compared to the, to the harder parts of you know finding yourself living out of a tent, homeless in Tennessee, looking to hang yourself from a water pole. Um, right. You can't find meaning in life. Uh, but the joke is really on yourself because because uh, we are God and uh, we are not uh, we're not from the universe. We're of the universe. The universe is us. Mm -hmm. We are it. So it's, it's not until you learn to look within uh, that you can find answers. And that's the journey of the heart. I mean, that, that to me is is kind of the the principle. Um, gravitational force of of people who were who were trying to put experience over possession is that they they understand i mean you framed it beautifully with the labyrinth of living right if you're going to unspool a string through a labyrinth it's going to be a spiritual string right i mean that's what's going to lead you home it's won't not going to be won't be religious there's a great expression from uh from a elder native um medicine man and it says Religion is for those who fear hell. Spirituality is for those who have gone through hell. <laughs> sure. Right. I mean, if you remove dogma, right, that's the whole point is, you know, you, you look at the Bible and it was, you know, the, the, the Nicene council selected what they wanted to put it in and put out. Right. I mean, oh, things are done, you know, and, and, and it's a different, it's an entirely different frame of reference than, as you said, right. You know, God is unknowable. That's yeah. The nature oh, religion, of it. Religion, religion acts upon the premise of that there's some great being above in the, in the sky, whatever, what have you, mm -hmm. and it has doctrine and uh, it, it it rules through fear. And you sit in these little pews and you, you know, uh, look at an altar and they have a priest. Uh, whereas spirituality uh, says that you know, we are God and we are of God. We are of the universe. Mm -hmm. we, we're all one, one conscience. When you look at me, I, I'm you and, and you and uh, together you're me. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much different way of looking at life. Uh, it's not a fear-based uh, way. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of, um, so basically the way of the warrior. 
in order to find that mm. that happiness, you know, to find that light. Again, you have to go through that darkness uh, rather than, rather than live in fear and be a good little person and follow these rules. Well, I, I, so I want to get to that because you were you had me thinking that way. Um, you know, when you're when you're talking to the Bedouins, who you know their home is 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 the the world around them. You know, they are moving across paths that have been there for thousands of years, and so they they take their community with them place to place to place. Yep. And you know that that concept of how you embrace the fluidity is fascinating to me. So there, I think there's, to me, I found two types of travelers, right? You know, there are people who, who want to be protected from the experience, you know, kind of put in a bubble that they can, you know, as if the, the world is Epcot. Yeah. Uh, and then there are those people that want to be immersed in it. And, and for me, you know, I've been, I've been in the, the mountains outside of Xi'an, China and, you know, up three different dirt roads to a monastery that was abandoned for 70 years. Yeah. And yet I still felt connected to those people. And it didn't feel that different from South Jersey or the Appalachian mountains where my grandparents grew up. What freaked me out and what forced me back on my heels was getting lost in Tokyo at <laughs> 12 o'clock at night. My own neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. I was, you know, I was in the Kawasaki area and uh, I, it's a long story. Anthony has heard it and he, he laughs at me, uh, producer, but I was distracted by a giant purple teddy bear that was <laughs> dancing and handing stuff out on the street and I yeah. lost sight of where my <laughs> hotel was. And, but, but for, for that 40 minutes until I was able to kind of find a landmark and get back, I felt so far removed from any Western written language from signposts and guidance that I understood. And I had a choice there to either embrace that kind of unusual sensation or yeah, to no. be bothered by it. And, yes. and, and I, found, I found a smile, right? So that, that yeah. helped me. I thought this was funny. Yeah. Do you find that too? Absolutely. So first I would say it's about, you know, people that are comfortable, they might as well just stay at home and they can just see the travel <laughs> on, on the TV. Uh, mm -hmm. You only find meaning in life by challenge, and that's how mm -hmm. you get change. That's how you get growth. So those experiences that you spoke about, uh, we can go back to the better ones in a minute. Uh, Tokyo, I know well. Mm -hmm. I lived in Japan for a year in Tokyo, yeah. uh, so I can relate to to Asia, which I I, I lived five years in uh, Tokyo specifically. Mm -hmm. So it's it, it's in it's in it's in it's through being lost that you find yourself. It's through yeah. the adventure. It's through the taking that risk. That you reward it, not just the dopamine in your brain, but mm. uh, the inner growth. Because if you weren't to, to, to take any risks in life and just to sit there, you would never have any flowers in your garden. You know, one mm. of the analogies I use, which is doing the dirty dishes, my website, yeah. uh, it's an analogy from Buddhism. And to, to, you know, to give a different way of looking at it, uh, life is a garden. You have to get your hands dirty. You have to get your hands in the soil. You have to till the earth in order to grow flowers. And that's basically living life. That's taking those adventures. That's taking those risks. Mm -hmm. That's going into the unknown. That's going beyond your limits. And that's what you find when you travel and you go to other cultures. And you said and you touched on it that there's no difference. And there isn't. People aren't any different. Uh, all languages mm -hmm. sound different, but they all communicate essentially the same uh, the same meaning. And uh, and it, you know, if you can sit and you understand different languages, and you hear a new language, you can get an idea of what they're saying through uh, through various means. But mm -hmm. if that's the adventure of looking within, and I think that when you travel, uh, that's one of the things that at least drives me is uh, finding those different places and finding those challenges and finding the, the the most uncomfortable situation I can be in, especially in a wheelchair. I could write a mm. book about uncomfortable situations just in airports alone around the world, <laughs> airplanes, <laughs> hotel rooms, access to toilets. I mean, it's a long list. So, yeah. um, but that's where the growth is in life, uh, Carmen. I think. Well, I mean, I, to me, when I when I look at your book and I look at the and I look at the blog, <clears throat> what I see is somebody who is making connections, who will go out of their way to say, "Hey, I don't know you that well, but tell me your story." Um, or do you want to go somewhere? Do you want, to, you want to have this experience with me? I find that the more you do that, the more you say yes, the more you reach out, the more 
you create your own luck. You create these happy accidents. You know, I was having lunch with people um, in China and we were eating uh, at like an all buffet in <laughs> Because they wanted to take us somewhere familiar. That's a so funny, we talking that's with, funny joke. Yeah, oh, it's great. I mean, it's hysterical. Um, and we we loved it. It was you know, like roast beef and you know uh, shrimp cocktail in you know like two hundred miles from you know the Mongolian desert. Um, but I asked them like, if you could go one place around here that was the coolest thing you've ever seen, where is it, and can we go? And they all talked and they said, well, it's, it's, we can go, it's four and a half hours away. And so I looked at the guy I was traveling with and said, well, four and a half hours, like we go out four and a half hours back. It's like a nine hour day. Like we're not going to be able to do that. So they put their heads back together and they talked again. And they're all talking in Mandarin and came back to say, okay, two hours. So we get in the car and four and a half hours later, <laughs> we show up at this place and they didn't care. They just were like, you need to see this. And, and I think anytime you can ask somebody that, in their culture, what they love, what's amazing, they're going to do it. They're going to put you with them. They want you to have something they feel strongly about. Of course. I think one of the keys that you're touching on without saying it is, is one of the things that I do when I travel, I do two things. I intentionally stay away from the expatriate community and mm. I intentionally stay away from the tourism route. And I go yeah. with the locals. I go to the local villages. I go off the beaten path because that's where you communicate with people. That's where you connect with people. Yeah. And when you connect with people, you'll find, and this is hopefully what uh, the TV show that we're developing now, uh, hopefully to record the pilot in Colombia in uh, fall, is mm. uh, to connect with the people. And then it becomes, again, a mirror. All of life is a mirror. Everything that you yeah. see is a reflection back to you of your own life, your own self, your own feelings, your own thoughts. And that doesn't change whether you're looking at the, the universe outside, the stars, you're looking in Philadelphia at the buildings, or if you're in China, looking at the mountains and you're talking to the locals. Those people mm -hmm. then become a mirror for you because you realize, and as do they, that you both face the same issues and concerns. You come from different countries, different cultures, mm -hmm. different languages, different foods, and all the different elements that we have in our in, in our lives. But you're basically the same. You know, you're both human. You both you both bleed. You both have parents. You both want to be loved. You both want to find sure. meaning and find happiness. And I think that's one of the things that you find, especially once you get off the beaten path, and mm -hmm. uh, and you go out and you do meet with the locals. So uh, that's a great way to travel. So, so tell me, um, I, I think that you're, you're saying everything that I have, a, I have a group of friends that have traveled around the world, some that work for the UN, some that have been, you know, in Doctors Without Borders, you know, a friend who grew up in Zimbabwe before, you know, the Mugabe collapse. <laughs> um, and, 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 and they all, they all say the same thing, which is that when you engage, when you um, are a seeker, that you find ways of um, of finding like-minded people. So, why and and maybe tell me a little bit more about um, why do you want to do a TV series? What do you see in Latin America right now that would cut through the clutter of what everybody else is doing and make for a, a fascinating watch? So basically, Carmen, uh, just like the book. I had hundreds of people telling me I should write a book and I didn't see any reason until the day I found the reason and then I wrote the book. Uh, the TV show is is a, something of the same nature. All during the time that I was going through my recovery, which I'm still going through, uh, a lot of people in my life told me you should make a TV show, you should make a TV show. Well, make a TV show about what? Uh, there's a lot of shows out there. As Americans, we know there's endless TV. We have 300 plus channels, even mm. though it travels around the world. I didn't see any real meaning for it until uh, one day I called an old friend, a classmate from Israel, Adam Kosberg, who was living in New York City at the time. It was the director of audiovisual for the 9-11 Museum. So mm. all 14 hours and two minutes that you hear and see at the museum were his. His 35th or 36th museum, I think he worked on. And mm. it was my birthday. And he didn't know that, but I called him up just to say hello and see how he was doing. And he told me that he had lost his job and he was devastated. And he had a house in Brooklyn and Williamsburg and he had a new kid 
was about mm. two years old at the time and he had a big mortgage and uh you know he made big money but he had big money bills and he wasn't <laughs> sure what to do uh, and back at harvard he studied uh religion and film and after that he left and he worked with errol morris the number one documentarian in the world for mm. five years in los angeles and i said to him hey adam you might consider going back to your heart again the mind versus heart corporate versus you know looking into your heart and finding your way in life so that you have happiness and fulfillment and he said well what do you mean steven i said well adam i think you should go back to your love uh, of filming and documentary work and he said well that's a great great uh idea steven but i don't have any projects to work on and i said well let me throw one your way and uh i told him the idea and seven hours later on at the end of the phone call he was on board and on my team. Uh, but the history kind of um, up to that point was that, you know, TV has basically two elements, well, three. You have the entertainment element, which is obvious. You have the education element in which you learn something from it. And then you mm -hmm. have the other element, which is the sauce of any show. That's the takeaway. That's the reason why people continue to tune in and come back and see you again. And up until that time, uh, you know, I had traveled the world and I was continuing to travel the world. At the time, I was living in Amsterdam and I had just come home for a few months before getting ready to leave again. And then this project came about and um, it started to make sense once the third element came into it. And that was the spiritual element. That was the element similar to the book of, you know, you can tell a story and you can entertain people and you can educate them. But what's going to be the secret sauce of the show? Hmm. And at that time, uh, we thought that, okay, we'll make it spiritual. So that's where we left it. And then after the conversation with Adam, I said, well, how much do we need and what do we need? And he said, we need about $50,000. And you, you live in Amsterdam, you're a local, and that's a great city in which to, to do a uh, pilot. So I said, okay, fine. I'll go get $50,000. In my mind, mm -hmm everything's easy because it's in my heart and I'm going to make it work. And somehow uh, through my diligence and tilling the earth, the soil of, of the garden of life, uh, the flowers will come. Well, like most projects, uh, you know, things look easier when said than having to put them on paper and get a check. So I went mm -hmm. to people, uh, friends that were, you know, had no money. And I went to friends that had millions of dollars and ultimately uh, everybody had said no. And this was just at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. And some people that I thought would be truly interested, uh, that could write a check for that amount. Uh, one, for example, Brian, uh, was in the restaurant business. And when we spoke, his revenue was down 50% at that, that at that mm -hmm. time. So I was kind of striking out and I had a lot of friends that said, Hey, I can put up 2000. I can put up 5,000. And uh, one friend who's a spiritual advisor and a writing advisor and kind of an all-around life advisor, Pat Croce, after a conversation at the end, I said to him, you know, uh, I'll beat your situation. I say it to everybody. And so, you know, tell me what you think. And I went through and I told him about the show and the idea. Uh, and at that time, we had come up with the, the name Wheels Up. Uh, and that came from Adam Kosberg. And that was basically a play on the term for pilots when they take off that wheels up mm -hmm. and they retract the wheels and you're off on your, your flight and your journey. And also was a play on the wheelchair, uh, having two wheels. And so I told Pat the idea and I described it to him. And he has a history in TV and movies, among other uh, entrepreneurial successes, the Sixers and a number of mm -hmm. uh, best-selling books and museums and restaurants in Florida. And yeah. uh, he, he gave me three answers, but I'll only share one of them with you. And basically, mm -hmm. the, he said, you know, Stephen, no, I won't help you. And I wasn't taken back by that. I respected the answer. And he said, let me tell you why. And one of the reasons he gave me, he said, well, Stephen, if I were to write you a check and give you the money, uh, that would be too easy. And <laughs> that's not your life. And that's not the, the person I know. And that's not the, the journey that you've been on in the last 10 years or throughout your life, throughout your life you have always tackled items or uh, projects that you thought were bigger than most people could and that you would make them work and you always brought them to success. So why change that story now? That's not your journey. To get the money and to go to Amsterdam and to do it would be too easy. 
But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that if you continue down the road that you're on and you do it on a shoestring budget and you make it work and you develop a pilot, that in the end, you will deserve all the success that comes to you and you truly will have an unbreakable mind. So from that point on, I thought, you know what? He's 100% right. And I'm not going to turn to anybody for money. I'm going to go and do it on my own and I'll find a way to make it work. And so at that point, uh, I had basically set up everything to go to Europe and film the pilot in Amsterdam. And I was Mm -hmm. going to figure out the money when the time came, I would cross that bridge. But we had a small uh, issue in the world called COVID-19, which basically Mm -hmm. stopped the world in its tracks in March of last year. And around uh, April, I took my home, all my belongings, everything in it, my car, and I gave it away to the poor and homeless, thinking, well, there's no need to put things in storage. There's other people in need, especially during this pandemic. And I'll give it to everybody, and I'll move to Europe, and I'll make the show, and everything will be successful. Again, my eyes were a bit brighter than, than, uh, than I should have had them in, in, in context of, of hindsight being 2020. So what happened was I, I sold everything, didn't sell, and I gave everything away. And I packed my bags and I went up to New York City where I used to live and stayed with a friend, a good friend of mine, George, who's an attorney there, and spent 10 days. And then on uh, June 15th, he dropped me at the airport, but something told him to come in to Newark with me. Went into the counter at Newark Airport, and I was the only person in the whole wing of uh, international check-in. The only person. <laughs> so, yeah, quite funny. And that was a first for me. So um, I got through the whole process, and uh, my luck, the girl behind the desk was Dutch. And she, you know, I was trying to basically get to Amsterdam, and then I figured being in a wheelchair with all my luggage and my story with my paperwork, uh, of the people that were involved in the project from New York City and Los Angeles that they wouldn't say no. They would want me to be there and film it. But she called Dutch immigration right there at the airport and spoke Dutch. And my Dutch isn't very great, but I understood enough of, of what she was saying to know that I wasn't going to board the flight. Hmm. So my friend brought me back to his apartment in Jersey City. And a few days later, my time had run out there and I ended up in a hotel at JFK out in Queens. And at that time... Europe was in the middle of not only the pandemic, but a fight with Trump and Pompeo. And they were going to make a decision July 1st, whether or not to renew uh, American visas to allow Americans to come to Europe. And uh, we ended up pulling their business visas for a year. And between that and the politics and the pandemic, Europe on July 1st said no. So now I find myself without a home to live in, without a car to live in, in which I have lived in before when I lost my business mm-hmm. after my accident. And I lived in a tent for six months, uh, total a year out of the car. Uh, I found myself homeless in New York, going broke, living in a Hilton at a few hundred dollars a night. <laughs> at that time, I turned to friends and told them the situation. They understood it. And they sent me some money quickly, and they gave me a, a small respite. So about a week later, uh, I was almost dead broke in uh, Queens. And a friend of mine, Elena from Portland, Maine said, Hey, Stephen, let me bring you up to Maine, get you out of New York and you can come up here in the mountains and nature. And I know you like that and it's healing and I'll get you up here and we'll find you a place to live. And then you'll get situated this summer and you can go on your way and and go record your pilot in Europe. Well, two things happened in that, in that, uh, timeframe. One, uh, no European nations were allowing Americans in and I had started writing embassies and I started getting acceptances for visas. Uh, Portugal was the first one. Their culture attache in San Francisco was very interested to have me go and record in Portugal. But uh, the producers weren't very interested in Portugal. They didn't think it would be a high sell uh, ticket item for a pilot in order to get uh, to make it succeed. So then I was left to spend time in, in Portland. Well, being in Portland, there's a housing shortage and it's very hilly. So uh, I couldn't find a place to live. So for the next seven months, I lived in a Hilton at the airport. Until, and yeah, so that now I'm eight months living out of a hotel, uh, which in a wheelchair is not too bad because you have flat floors, elevators, mm-hmm. you know, access to showers and washer and dryer. So it's, it's not horrible, but it's, it's horribly expensive. So I was really unsure what to do and, and how to proceed until one day I was on a phone 
call with Amazon customer service because of an issue with a product that I had sent from China. I sent the wrong product. They replaced it with an inferior product. And I was talking to a young man, as I mostly do with people. I connect with the heart. They feel the vibration, the frequency. And uh, Amazon published my book, and he found the book, and he quickly read it when we were talking, the, the bio. And he was very interested, and he said, you know, I know you're on a journey, and you're in your heart. And he said, why don't you come to Nicaragua? And for some reason, up until that point, looking at the COVID map and who was open and who wasn't open, having tried already to go to nine countries, Indonesia twice, Colombia twice, and every other country under the sun that would take me, I couldn't make entry to any of them. It just wasn't possible to make it work with the conditions of COVID at the time. And I didn't think of Central America, I guess because El Salvador is a bit of a, a mess right now, and politically, Guatemala and Honduras are a bit of a mess. And somehow Nicaragua just fell through the cracks. Uh, but then I found my my way and my opening. And two weeks later, I was in Miami, which is where I knew I had to get to in order to make it to Central America, flying from yeah. my, Miami. And uh, within a month, I had my ticket and uh, and everything secure. And, and I ended up uh, going to Nicaragua, which is where I'm speaking to you from now. So in that time frame, uh, the show basically got put on hold. Uh, I wasn't able to go to Europe. And the idea started to fall apart. Uh, the education part, uh, or the entertainment rather, part is easy because it's a travel show. And you travel the world and that's entertaining and people like it. The education part is also a bit simple because as you're in these countries, you're educating people on the geography, the language, the foods, the culture, the customs, and all mm -hmm. the different elements of different countries. But the third element, which is what I call the secret sauce, the spiritual element, uh, wasn't there. And basically, I took both issues, one being stuck in a hotel and not having a country or home to live in, as a spiritual uh, meaning in order to look deeper within. And I took that time and I read a hundred and some books and I found a different meaning inside. And uh, also uh, not having the answer as far as what that would mean for the spiritual element of the show was another spiritual lesson in, you know, look within further, look deeper and mm. see what you can find. So once I moved to Nicaragua, it became clear to me that the element that would make it most successful, and you talked about uh, Latin America, and I'll kind of broaden that to, to include South America, uh, was basically what I've done my whole life and what I do now and, and how, I, how I connect with people and magnetize them is through meeting them and meeting them on their terms and meeting them locally off the beaten path, as we spoke about, in the villages, out with the locals, how they live, and what challenges do they face? And the Eureka moment was basically, uh, I was looking too hard and I was using my mind. And the truth of the matter was, again, it was in my heart because the answer is always in the heart. And that was that by talking with these people and communicating with them and uh, relating to them, not only through the wheelchair and through injury and through struggle, but through their struggle and their daily lives and what they face daily, it gave me a mirror back that said, here's something that people on the other end of the TV tube can relate to. They can relate to these people that are just like them all over the world, <laughs> have the same worries, the same fears, the same anxieties, and the same triumphs and obstacles and successes. And so that was really the kind of key moment uh, that tuned into my heart and said, you know, this is the, this will be the sauce of the show is talking and communicating with people and letting that be a mirror to the viewers at home into their lives. Wow. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I think that when you can, when you can take a listener from the inception of an idea, you know, and through the process of what it takes to develop it, you know, you, you start to see what resilience and perseverance are about. And I think that's the piece, you know, when I, when I listen to you and I think about the things that you're doing, you know, you pick things to do that are not easy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's the, the idea of, you know, Kennedy saying, you know, we don't go to the, to the moon because it's easy. We go because it's hard because it, yes. it challenges us that there's an underpinning, you know, of spirituality to that, 
that yes. if you're if you're focused on the humanity behind it, if you're focused on the the appreciating the journey and the connections along the way, that's the part, Steve, that I I find enlightening, and I mean that both from it's interesting and new to me, but it but it has a a window into enlightenment. You know, that's the key. So I want to I'm going to end the podcast on. I only ask two questions at the end of each podcast and and yours is set up beautifully because the two questions are so what and now what the so what is what do you do when you're faced with that pivot what gives one person the strength to take it and use it to build something new what what can you tell people about that strength or that point of view that's useful for them. So to, so to go back to uh, Michael Jordan and the quote is you miss a hundred percent of the shots you never take. So mm -hmm. uh, you're speaking of Kennedy and the spiritual element of life uh, mm -hmm. and to me being a very spiritual person, it comes back again to the heart. And what I would challenge people when people come to me for clarity coaching uh, and they're lost in life and they wake up at 45 and they look next to them in bed and say, who's this girl I married and, uh, and who am I? And of course she's changed and you've changed. But the thing that I tell people is, is that you didn't know yourself first before you entered into that marriage, which is fine. That's part of the journey. That's life. That's living. But where pe people ultimately can find fulfillment and find meaning is by looking into their own heart, taking time aside from their job and all these security blankets that they have and, and try to find what's their passion. What gives them meaning? What gives them happiness? And one question I always ask them is, is if money was of no worry to you in the world and you could pay your bills, what would you do with your time? And to me, I never asked the question, what would I do without money? I just have always looked into my heart and followed my heart and I did it since a young age. So it comes natural to me. But for mm. most people, they're on that path that society has prescribed that you get an education and you get married and you buy a house and you check all these boxes. And not only that, the American way is, is to then go buy things on credit, buy houses that are too big, cars that are too big and wasteful, and spend your life being a slave to your job and your work. And at some point, people wake up from life, which is typically midlife crisis, and they say, I'm unhappy. Well, why mm -hmm. are they unhappy? They're unhappy because they've chosen a path that wasn't really truly theirs, that wasn't in alignment with their heart, with their soul, with their purpose, with their destiny. And it's only when you get back on that track, not to make a train joke, being that I was found under a train <laughs> with an accident, but, uh, but people get thrown off track. And that's yeah. often, again, why sickness comes to people, is it's a gift. It's a gift to get you to sit down away from all those outside elements and to look within your heart and see what are your priorities, what's important, what do you want to truly do with your life? What's active wow. too. And for me, as one spiritual advisor, uh, Paul Pitchford, author of um, uh, Healing with Whole Foods, an amazing person and uh, into it and healer, uh, said to me, Stephen, I'm not even sure a train was enough to knock you down to the point uh, in the universe where you're going to be able to look into your heart because you're so mind driven that mm. uh, often you're going to overlook your heart, which is what we do. So, you know, to get on a different track in life, I would challenge people to, to, to look into their hearts, to be real, to be authentic, and to really think of what they want to do and what brings them the greatest happiness. The expression, wow. do what you love and money will come, is true. Uh, again, it didn't apply to me so much because I've always assumed the money would be there and the universe would bring it my way. So mm -hmm. that's what I would tell people is to look into your heart and to see what really truly makes you happy. And then once you take that first step, Okay. It's only when you take the first step. If you talk about it, it doesn't matter. Once you take the first step, then the universe will provide the net for you and you'll be fine and life will go on and the flow of life will continue, but you'll get into the flow of life. And once you get into the flow of life, uh, life becomes different and the eyes that you see the world through uh, change. Wow. I mean, that, that's amazingly inspirational. And I think that it's, uh, you know, it, it hits on that, um, that leap of faith you know, to, at the end of the day, you are kind of the, the master of your destiny, you know, be that person. So, um, 
I think that's all the time that we have now. Um, I this this is fascinating. I would love for you to come back um, after you've you've shot a couple of episodes, or if there's an you know your book is your second book is ready to come out. Um, I think for my listeners, when we talk about allies and we talk about people who connect. Um, you are a wonderful example of somebody who, um, because they're so sure of who they are, because you've gone on your journey, you make it possible for a lot of other people to trust you enough to try to do the same. So I want to thank you for that. I found this to be a, a, a wonderfully interesting conversation. Thank you for honoring that, Carmen, and thank you for the interview. All right. Well, that's all the time we have now. Uh, I want to thank Steve for uh, for showing up uh, from the wilds of Nicaragua, uh, dealing with internet issues uh, and a stifling heat. I want to thank Anthony for <laughs> working through our schedules, including mine. Um, but more importantly, I want to thank everybody who's listening. If you have additional questions of Steve, you can uh, check him out on his uh, blog, Doing Dirty Dishes. Um, you can take a look at his book. I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. Um, and, and take a look at his, uh, at his travel blog too. That's really interesting to see where he goes. Um, and for us, uh, you can check us out on allies podcast. And if you have any additional questions or suggestions for who else we can interview, we're always interested. And until next time, thanks for tuning in.